0: Every week, we do a Q&A with interesting and accomplished members of the adaptive community to find how they persevere, how they innovated, how they built communities, and how they found solutions. Welcome to the Name Tags Chat Podcast. All right, welcome to the Name Tags Chat Podcast, where we celebrate stories of resilience. Our motto is, it's not what happens to you, it's what you do with what happens to you. We are joined today by Dana Lawson, who is a survivor of trauma, cancer, amputation, and domestic abuse. And you know what, Dana? It's interesting. I will I will formally welcome you, but I want to say that one of the things in our name tags program, our educational program, we have something called the four S's of resilience, and they're the questions that we can ask ourselves when things get difficult. It's about self situation, support, and strategy. And so, the, you know, self, am I a victim or am I a survivor? Uh, situation, is it overwhelming or a challenge? Am I alone or part of a team? And do I have one strategy or many? And in looking over all of your stuff, I think we're going to hit on all four of the four S's of resilience. So, Dana, thank you very much for joining us. Welcome to the Name
1: Tags Chat podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Chris. It's such an honor to be here. And just really excited to uh, talk a little bit more about um, all kinds of really neat things with you today.
0: Well, neat things coming up, you have, so, so you're, you're an amputee who gets around on crutches because as a result of the cancer, it, a prosthetic is not comfortable. You said sitting is not comfortable. So you're going to do a marathon on June 6th and is this news to you that I'm telling you you're giving me that look like am I really who told you that I was doing a marathon
1: that's how I feel every time I hear it being said out loud I'm like oh my gosh someone else knows about it now I'm really gonna have to do this thing
0: (laughs) well you know what it's kind of funny because my my idea with goals is that you set a big goal and then you say it out loud because then you're held to you're held by everybody else, right? I mean, they, they're going to say, yeah, Dana, you said you were going to do that. How did that marathon work out? Are you ready? Are you going? But so you're doing it on crutches. You're doing it on forearm crutches that actually have a shock absorber on the crutches. So it makes it a little bit more comfortable. It sounds like there was a little bit of a challenge in learning how to use the, the, the crutches. But why did you decide that you wanted to do a marathon? And what's the marathon that you're going to do?
1: So way back when, uh, when I was 26, I was uh, really into running and I had, you know, like all good goal setters. I decided I was going to set a really big goal for myself, run a marathon, started training. And that's really when, you know, I first started, I was stretching one day and I felt a lump in the back of my calf. And that's how I discovered my cancer. So it was really my desire to complete a marathon that helped to bring to light this physical challenge that was really in front of me. And so thankfully, that happened so that I could figure out that I had cancer. So what happened once I figured out that I did have cancer and then have to deal with that, it has been this series of interruptions of my attempts of trying to complete this marathon. that I got started when I was 26. I always refer to myself kind of as girl interrupted. And so, um, and and also it served as the fuel for me as the fuel for keeping me moving forward, setting goals for myself, not giving up as I was going through my treatment, sitting there looking at my IV drip and thinking to myself, you know, when I get done with this and I get back out again in whatever form it is, if I want to not do what I'm going to do, I'm going to think back on these days when I was stuck in this chemo chair Wrapped up to this machine when I couldn't get out there and do something and that's going to be the fuel that's going to keep me going. So once I got past the first portion of my cancer uh, and I eventually needed to have my leg amputated in 2008 and I uh, was passionate about getting a running blade and Worked with some nonprofits that donated them to me and I was so excited to learn how to run and back at that marathon quest I was I ran a few 5k's in that blade but Couldn't really make it past that point, then struggled again, found out that my cancer come back in my hip and pelvis. I needed to get back into treatment, lost the ability to use the prosthesis into a wheelchair. Now I'm like, okay, now I'm gonna do the wheel. Now I'm gonna do the marathon in my wheelchair. So off I go again, another 5K in my wheelchair and uh, continued on cancer, continuing to kind of ride the tide with me and this marathon attempt. And so now here I am in 2021 and I just finished up a two-year, very intensive uh, clinical trial for my type of cancer. It was a first-in-human chemotherapy treatment, and it was really intense. And the p- person that took me over for my treatments is also similar to us, very goal-oriented, loves to be out- outdoors, and is also an athlete. She's a cyclist. And so she asked me when we were getting toward the end of chemo, you know, what are you going to do if you're going to take a break from treatments? What's, what, what are you going to do? I mean, I can't imagine all this free time you're going to have now. And so I had said to her, you know, I've always had this thing. And here we are just sort of making light of conversation in the car as we transit back and forth. And lo and behold, I planted the seed when I said to her, you know, I've always wanted to do a marathon. And so at the end of my cancer treatment, the very last day, if it wasn't for the universe or serendipitous intervention came in. We received an email from a marathon that is in our town. It's called the North Olympic Discovery Marathon. And that's here in uh, on the Olympic Peninsula in Washington State. And before I knew it, I get an email from my friend the next morning that says, after we get back from chemo, oh, hope you don't mind. I signed us up for the marathon. So boom, there it was. I literally closed Yes, exactly. I closed the door on chemo and literally opened the door on the marathon one right after the other.
0: Wow. Can you describe the Olympic Peninsula in this marathon and like what you're going to see? Because I'm imagining that you will enjoy some of the distractions along the way.
1: We are super fortunate, yes, here on the Olympic Peninsula. We have the this amazing thing called the Olympic Discovery Trail, and that's really what initially brought me to the area. We are positioned in a place where we're in the rain shadow from the Olympic Mountains, so we don't get as much rain uh, as the rest of Washington. But shh, don't tell anyone. <laughs> I know. So uh, that portion, that the ability to get outdoors in my wheelchair and not always be rained upon was something that was attractive to me. And then in addition to that, I found this Olympic Discovery Trail, which is this beautiful uh, ADA uh, paved trail view that you have along the way. You can go along the Strait of Juan de Fuca. You can see the Olympics. You can see Mount Baker. You can see the Cascades. I mean, it's kind of massive eye candy the whole time that you're going along uh, on your walk so I've been training all along the ODT to get myself prepared so I know the route but it's been I mean it's just so picturesque it's hard not to stop and just look
0: how long do you think that it's going to take you to do this marathon so 26.2 miles how long will that take you
1: So targeting right now where I'm at, I mean, I don't know, because I've never, ever attempted anything like this before. The furthest I've ever been is on my, um, is in my, let me think about the furthest I've ever been. I think the furthest I've ever been with a prosthesis was doing my 5Ks. So using my forearm crutches, which is what I use now, which is what we had mentioned earlier, these side sticks crutches that have shock absorbers and specialized angles in them to give me the most push out of my forearm lever. Uh, The furthest that I've ever been on those so far is just a little over 12 miles. So this coming up weekend, I'm going to, my training goal is to hit the half marathon mark. So we're just seven weeks away from the marathon now. And so I'm working on trying to get my pace built up so I can only guess about what I'm going to be hopeful to achieve. So I'm hoping to be able to keep myself at a pace of somewhere around an 18 to a 20 minute mile. Which will permit me to finish somewhere in between 10 and 12 hours of total race time. And of course, I'll stop along the way. Girls got to eat every now and again. When the girl uses her hands to walk, she's going to actually have to stop and eat. So I'm not like too passionate about the whole like PR thing and getting it done as quickly as I can. I'll just be so so grateful if I'm even able to accomplish the thing altogether. But 10 to 12 hours is what I'm hoping for.
0: Wow, I think that I'm trying to remember there was a story of like Frank Shorter who had won won a marathon and one of the people who had who had been way at the back of the pack and said, Wow, like you ran, you ran that fast. You ran like 210, 215, whatever it was. That's amazing. And he said, Well, how long, how long did it take you? And guys, you know, six hours or something. He said, Well, I could never do that. You know, I can never run that long. That's a, so, so there are two, two different parts of it, right? The people who go really fast and the people who are able to continue when others really just can't keep going. How do you keep doing that? You said that, that those days in chemo that you thought that that's your fuel, but you're doing this for, for other reasons, though, too, right? I mean, are you thinking about, about those other reasons as you're going along?
1: Definitely. I'm, I think one of the things that really resonates with me, some of the things that you and I have spoken about before, which is when you put a cause out in front of yourself, and that's really the purpose behind the goal that you have set for yourself. That for me is what I've been doing for myself for the physical goals that I've set. So uh, last fall, I set a, a really lofty goal for myself to uh, climb mountain-wise over 5K not all at once, but over a cumulative two month timeframe, which translates into over 16,000 feet. And that was for a fundraiser for my cancer foundation, the Desmoid Tumor Research Foundation. And when I was doing that, I mean, that was insane. Some days I was doing like 4,000 feet in elevation change, you know, on my crutches with one leg. And so I was thinking about certain patients that I knew of that were going through really big struggles themselves and literally honoring them, saying their names out loud when I was really struggling and saying like, when I'm ready to give up and I'm like saying, you know, for this person's name, this is for you. I'm not gonna give up because I know you can't do this and I am here and I can, and I will for us. And that's what kept me going for that. And that is the same type of purpose Uh, experience that I'm having with the marathon, except this time, now my focus is on raising awareness for domestic abuse, and so I'm working right now, ironically, on trying to strategize how best to put that all together for my marathon, thinking to myself, you know, each mile that I achieve as I go along in my marathon, I want it to be for something significant. Is it for a survivor? Is it because I want to raise awareness about a particular statistic? but I'm assembling 26 steps for me to follow as I go through my marathon so that each and every mile has significance for me. It's not just 26.2 miles that I need to complete, but each one of them has an emotional attachment to me so that there's no way that I can not, not complete that for them.
0: That is awesome. That's a great way to think about it. Just in terms of how, how you approach each mile. So it gets a mile three and mile three is for so-and-so. So each mile gets to be that much more significant. And, and it also, it's it's an interesting one too, right? Having a goal that's bigger than you yourself, you, you, you draw on that power too, right? I mean, you're giving to that person, but at the same time, that gives you that much more purpose and that much more power as you go through each individual mile. But you're also, you're raising money for an initiative as well, aren't you?
1: Yeah, so back in uh, 2007, as a result of my journey with my cancer, I started a nonprofit called Nature's Academy. And for the first 13 years of our existence, we focused on K through 12 STEM, science, technology, engineering, and math programs. And I spent a ton of time outdoors, learned outdoors, I was able to study abroad in Australia and went over to the Galapagos for marine biology stuff. So I've always been hooked on connecting the outdoors with learning. And so for me, with Nature's Academy, my whole purpose behind that was that I really wanted to establish a program. We were on the west coast of Florida where we could create an education program for underserved kids that weren't able to get outdoors as frequently and give them an opportunity to learn in a different setting. Then along came COVID, no more field trips with kids, you know, kind of hit a pause button on that along with the rest of the globe for about a year plus now. And so during that time frame, personally, things have changed for me. I no longer live in Florida. I've been running Nature's Academy back in Florida out here from Washington State. I live out here now uh, for my cancer treatments. This is where my team is and where my hospital is. So during the whole COVID timeframe and the phase out of our Florida programs, personally myself, I also went through a divorce, which was the result of a domestic abuse incident and a long ongoing situation that I had endured and finally escaped from. So this perfect kind of pismet of things came together for me during COVID of where it was time for us to reshape Nature's Academy, think about what we were gonna do post COVID. And then my own personal experiences really commanded a new approach for myself. Just teaching, just teaching STEM education to kids was not, you know, I'd enjoyed that for the first 20 years, but I'm, I was ready to really take it to the next level for myself. And so I decided to launch a new education program called Unbounded Horizons, and we're launching that here on the Olympic Peninsula. And that program is specific to survivors of domestic abuse. And we are using the outdoors, just like we've always done at Nature's Academy as our educational platform. And this program that we're doing with Unbounded Horizons, as opposed to it being focused on students, this is for adult female survivors to start off with. And our real intention is to uh, assist our participants to walk away with the notion that they can heal from trauma. We'll focus on personal development, We're gonna focus on nature connection activities. We're going to focus on some financial education and some stability uh, because these are all components of uh, that survivors of domestic abuse are in great need of. So we're really hopeful by rolling out this program on Bounded Horizons. We're able to connect these survivors with nature and give them some uh, real, um, sort of a real pathway to recovery for them.
0: Well, I mean, yeah, the support the uh, t- t- to be able to recover, right? I mean, you're talking about, one, with Nature's Academy, where it was so important to have the experiential learning and to couple that with, with STEM to make it really impactful for the students, right? Because, I mean, in education, it's certainly students who who might not get the opportunity to see those things firsthand, to see, to touch, to... To, to smell whatever it is, it, it sticks with you that much more. But then now looking at the, at the domestic abuse, you're talking about the financial part, but it also, I mean, it seems to me like the, like the situation is is the kind of situation that you think, how can I possibly get out of this situation? It's you're, you're, you're locked in that cycle of, of depression and optimism and, and, and you can't seem to, to get out of it. So breaking that, what's, what's important about what you're doing with Unbounded Horizons about the, about the support that you're giving to people? Because you're talking about the, the financial support, which is, it makes it much easier to, to move out of a situation, but, but how, what, does, what does the person need to be able to break that cycle?
1: So let me bring it back first, and let's just talk a little bit about what really defines domestic abuse. I think that there's a big misnomer that occurs. We always refer to domestic violence as domestic violence, but it really should be termed domestic abuse because there's four different types of domestic abuse. There is verbal, there's emotional, there is psychological, there's financial. I'm going to list five because you can, there's really, you know, there's, Emotional and verbal can kind of come be tied in together, but sometimes I feel like they're worthy of saying. So emotional, verbal, there's financial, there is the psychological, and then of course there's the physical piece. And the physical piece is usually the last one to arrive to the party. The first three are kind of getting you groomed and ready for that last one that's gonna come along. And it's quite textbook the way that it occurs over and over again. So. When you survive being in a domestic abuse situation, when you are finally able to escape that, and notice that I use the terminology escape, I don't say that a survivor is able to leave because that would be saying that somebody who is in a prison can just open up the door and walk out freely. And that is exactly the case for survivors of domestic abuse. We don't have the option to just walk out the door. In order to escape, there needs to be a well-assembled plan And when you do leave your abuser, if you are able to get away, the first two weeks during that timeframe is the most volatile and the highest probability of murder. Now, three women are murdered in the United States every single day as a result of intimate, intimate partner violence. So the risk is very real and it's very prevalent. So once you're able to escape that situation, Beyond just the physical scars that you may be left with, the emotional and psychological scars of what's happened to you as a result of where you've been in sort of this prisoner of war situation where psychologically your entire mindset has been completely brainwashed and flipped over. So things like gaslighting happens to you. And if you're not familiar with gaslighting, that's where the verbal and the emotional abuse comes in where you're constantly questioning Partner is constantly, or your child and domestic abuse does not have to happen between partners. It can happen between parents and children. It can happen between siblings. So uh, it definitely does not need to be just between partners. But in my setting, it was a partner. So that's how I have the tendency to refer to it. So uh, when you're being gaslit, if you will, they're constantly putting you down, questioning your own reality, and making you eventually begin to even question your own self-confidence to where you begin to think, gosh, like, am I even really thinking this properly anymore? And so there's that portion of it where your whole concept of reality gets flipped upside down. And then there's also this thing called trauma bonding, which is kind of, if you've ever heard of like Stockholm syndrome, it's kind of like where you think of when you think of uh, very well publicized kidnapping cases have happened and you hear that the kidnappers take their, uh, the kids with them into public and everyone said, well, why didn't the kid just run away? You know, I don't understand when they were at the store, they should have just screamed out. It's because of trauma bonding and the psychological bond that happens with your abuser where they become both your safety and your storm all in one. And through isolation, they become really the only ones that you trust and the only ones that you seek any help from. So to begin to kind of unwind all of this brainwashing and things that have happened, that's really the next step of once you're finally escaped, now you're safe, let's say you're, you're sheltered, you're, you're on your way, you're out of your abusive relationship, and now you're in a place that's kind of akin to where I am. I'm, a, I'm about 16 months out myself. Now you're ready to really embark upon a healing journey. And this is now time for you. To really begin to understand what's happened to you, understand the terms that I just referred to you, um, you know, just really dig in to understand the psychological warfare that you have completely survived. There's that portion of it. There's also, like all good trauma survivors, you know, veterans, I would say every individual that has just come through the pandemic, you know, all of us. We There is a certain kind of an undercurrent of anxiety that lives there that we refer to as being triggered very easily, where it doesn't take much for us to all of a sudden, just that sense of panic starts going, the heart rate starts going, the sweaty palms happen, and all of a sudden you're responding to a situation that doesn't even really merit it properly. And so that's another technique that we'll be working on besides the education piece, the domestic abuse education, is the personal development and nature connection activities where we're going to be helping our survivors to learn breathing techniques and just being in nature quietly and connected to nature, like meaning no phone, no book, just you and the trees and the birds and the sky and the mountains, ocean, wherever it happens to be that you go. There are, I think over 300 studies that have already been published that show very clearly what happens to your stress hormones, like cortisol is reduced in your saliva after just 20 minutes of being outside in nature, just sitting there. So through our program, we're going to combine the power of just that simplicity along with some guided activities to really facilitate that connection with nature. And then the last piece of what you were referring to is the financial education piece. Uh, One of the statistics that I learned about for survivors of domestic abuse that was really enlightening to me is that 99% of domestic abuse survivors are subjected to financial abuse. That's a big statistic, 99%. So what that really translates into is that typically survivors have been isolated from checking accounts. They've been isolated for having independent finances. Perhaps they're not even on the deed of their home or they're not on the rent, you know, the application for the apartment that they're renting. They don't have their own cell phone. So when they finally do escape this relationship and they're ready to begin their life again with no credit, we can't apply for even an apartment. You can't apply for an apartment uh, to try to live in an apartment on your own without credit. You cannot get a cell phone without credit. So some of the very basic things that you need in order to have that access to independence to begin rebuilding your life we as survivors have been isolated from and it creates a huge barrier. And so that's a piece that I think is really important part of unbounded horizons that we're going to help them. And in addition to all of that, once they finish the program, we've got to incentivized to, to hopefully have them complete all of the program and some additional homework like creating a personal financial budget and uh, doing some volunteer services perhaps you know, rejoining your community and starting to get back out there with people again which is another huge component we're going to provide them with a $200 stipend if they're able to complete all of these things and to really give them another little boost to keep them going forward as a result of their uh, completion of the program so it's pretty comprehensive and, and we plan on staying connected the, the group that will participate in each cohort will be one little private group that we will keep and facilitate that connection within one another, so that each you know each group that comes through will have sort of a subset of little uh, support groups, so that they can stay connected with each other and hopefully continue to grow and heal.
0: As you were talking about, I mean, the connection with with nature is something that you know makes sense for all of us, right? I mean, we're super connected, super connected people right now, and seems like we never really are free of the electronics, of the pressure, of the stress. And and it's amazing in some ways that you have to go through as much trauma as you have to go through in order to treat yourself well, because that's, that's what I'm taking from what you're talking about, is like teaching people to treat themselves well, but also free them from the financial captivity. On the idea of trauma, how much of your experience from going through cancer do you take to the domestic abuse situation? How much of that learning, how much did it inform it?
1: Personally, I don't think I could have survived what I went through in my domestic abuse situation had I not already been surviving cancer and survived my amputation, quite honestly. I. It was a really, it was a very miserable existence. And I, I, you know, was doing my best to put on a brave face for the outside world, you know, and say that, you know, kept saying to myself, you know, it's going to get better one day. And I kept saying that to myself, but the, the long resilient lifestyle that I have developed as a result of having cancer since 26 years old. I mean, in just a couple of years, I'm going to cross over this golden birthday of, 53. Not golden because I want to turn 53. I'll be grateful because every day is a gift. But 53 is the year where I will then have had cancer longer than I will have not had cancer. So I will have crossed the bridge over to subsisting longer with cancer than without it. So that when you really think about it is and still have it, it's not as if I've been cured from it or you know, I've been kind of taking a hiatus from treatments during these time. It's been an ongoing slog now for me for 22 years with cancer.
0: What does that teach you when it's an ongoing slog for 22 years? Because that's that seems incomprehensible to me.
1: In the very beginning, it taught me a lot of sadness. You know, taught me a lot of depression. It taught me a lot of uh, the why is me syndrome, the kind of, you know, that whole sort of pity party thing that happens to you. I mean, I was 26, I was living in the Florida Keys. I was driving boats out to a coral reef every day and taking people snorkeling. Getting cancer was not in this brochure of my life that I had been handed. So I was angry, you know, about it. I, at first I didn't even want to deal with it. I just kind of blew it off for a couple of years and just pretended like it wasn't even there. I did some really, you know, made some poor, as we all do in our late twenties, I made some poor choices, (laughs) but I'm still here grateful, you know, that I, I survived all of them. And so eventually what ended up happening is that the pendulum swung to the other side. And instead of me being angry and bitter and feeling sorry for myself, I became extraordinarily grateful. And I became extraordinarily compassionate and I switched over from this whole, oh, why is me, this is terrible that it happened to me into, I'm so fortunate that this did happen to me so that I can learn these lessons so that I can then hopefully help other people. And maybe another way I can articulate it is that um, I always say that after 22 years of having cancer, if you ask me when I first got diagnosed, you know, here's the cancer line, Here's the not cancer line. Which one do you want to get in? Of course, without cancer, I would immediately get in the no cancer line. But now that I have had cancer for 22 years, I would never, ever get out of the cancer line because of all of the wisdom that it's brought me, the gratitude, the resiliency, the ability to dig deep within myself and even on those worst days where you're just kind of like I, this is like this is just impossible I don't understand why life is like this and you just kind of want to throw in the towel and be done somehow I've been able to just say to myself you know what you know your track record so far is still 100 percent. your experiences may have been pretty tough getting here but you're still at 100 percent." so
0: what do you what do you mean by your track record is 100% i don't know if i understand that
1: meaning that i hadn't given up on anything yet that i was still here you know cancer hadn't taken me out yet you know i might have had my leg amputated but i'm still here you know i'm still trying to do this marathon i'm still living i'm still getting outside i'm still being and so on those darkest days when i have those moments where i just really want to throw in the towel that's what i start to reflect on for myself is just kind of like okay You know, let's not think too far in the future. Let's focus on right here in this moment. Think about where you've been. Know that this is not permanent, what you're dealing with right now. Like everything else, it's all very fluid. And so just kind of rest into it and go with it. And so I think that's what cancer really has taught me, which is how to not be so resistant to the things that we can't change.
0: In those moments when you didn't give up, is that how you envisioned yourself being healthy? Was, was that a, could you be healthy in that moment? Does that make sense as yes. a question?
1: Yes, and I really did, you know, I didn't, I never, I, I think that's a, you know, really a great way for all people to look at themselves is to not in that moment, you know, I could look at myself as a sick cancer patient, you know, who was weak and who needed all these machines to stay alive. And what really, you know, when I really looked at myself in not who I was on the outside, but who I am on the inside, I was still that whole resilient person, you know, that was just this bright, I've always been this bright light. I've been so happy and joyful my whole life. And this joyful person on the inside has never been diminished, regardless of all of these different situations that I've been through. So I did have a, A sort of inner reflection within myself of what I felt like I still looked like. And that's who I envisioned who I was, which was healthy, but dealing with a chronic illness that I recognize. Um, And one of the strange things that we say that we do, which sounds kind of weird, but I used to say, you know, I'm fighting against cancer. I hate cancer. or you've seen the bumper stickers, you know, like "F cancer." And I've I've never, honestly, taken that approach. Uh, I can't say never say never. My mom died from pancreatic cancer, and it was kind of miserable. So I may have felt that way during that time frame. But from my own journey, um, I don't. I decided I just didn't want to wage war on something in my body against myself and I didn't like the whole antagonist setup of saying oh I'm waging this war against something because what if you don't win you know what's the ultimate failure there what does that mean if you don't get rid of it all and you still have it does that mean that you failed and that you can't keep living your life so I decided to recouch or to kind of turn that whole phrase on its head and say you know what I love cancer I love my tumor I mean, I know it sounds crazy, but those are my cells, right? Like they may not be behaving the way that anatomically they they should be. Maybe they're being bad cells, but they're still my cells. And I don't wanna hate any part of myself. And so I decided instead of sending hate, fight, negativity, I wanna get rid of you, I'm gonna cut you off. I mean, the poor thing, I cut it off and sent it off already. So now the stuff that's left in me, I've decided I'm, you know, I'm just going to really hold space for it, if you will, not in the sense of like, hey, keep growing, but hold space for it in the sense of making a partnership with my cancer and saying, hey, you know, if we can both ride this out together, then we're both going to have a pretty good time. And as long as you don't get too crazy, I won't get too crazy. We can have this partnership and I will, you know, maintain the bod if you can maintain yourself over here and we can keep it even Steven and I'll take you on all kinds of adventures. So coexist, Okay. That's been my kind of my uh, 22 year evolution of my life with cancer.
0: How was it? Was it more difficult in the domestic abuse situation to be able to look at yourself as healthy and happy than the cancer? And how, how was that dynamic different?
1: So I think that you could refer to as an abuser as another type of cancer, for sure. It's insidious in nature in that sense. And uh, that was one that I struggled with mightily. I did not see myself because for- fortunately with just a tumor, my tumor doesn't get a chance to gaslight me and trauma bond me and do all these other, it's just a little quiet thing down there. So my abuser, unfortunately, though had had a voice, and he, you know, he was a human, so he could do activities. And so, the level of the uh, control, the threat, the fear, the disassociation from myself was really escalated when I was in that particular setting. So I really lost um, lost touch with myself for a while, and I don't think that you know I'm not of the school of thought that you you give yourself cancer or if you don't think positively you're bound to have a chronic illness, but I do believe in, in positive thinking. And I do believe in having endorphins and happy happiness will help to create the right hormones for you and reduce the wrong hormones so that physiologically your body can work properly. And when I was in that setting, I was definitely not in a very healthy endorphin setting for myself. It was a very negative one. And so It was really, you know, for me, it was really, really a very toxic situation and one that I did not deal with as well as I did with my cancer.
0: But the recovery has to be kind of similar in some ways, right? How, because, because essentially you have to rebuild yourself and, and you have to be healthy kind of from the inside out in order in order to be successful and viable uh, as a person. How do you, how do you do that process? And how do you, in some ways as bizarre as it sounds, how do you forgive yourself for the situation to then be, to then allow yourself to grow healthy?
1: These are some good questions today, Chris. All right. So yeah, that, you know, I think very first and foremost, the very, the big thing for me was nature. What ended up happening for me as I was coming out of my abusive relationship was I got out of my wheelchair because of my cancer treatments. I had been in my wheelchair full time for a while. uh, And I did not have any access um, to real mobility devices besides this wheelchair. I discovered those forearm crutches, which then gave me the ability to literally go out into the woods on my own and start to do, you know, some real empowerment things where, you know, just to get over a root ball or to get over a, um, you know, a couple of rocks was a major, you know, challenge for me. And to be able to do that, that sense of empowerment that I got from just these very small physical challenges began to translate into that building of the bridge and reconnecting me back with that person that we were talking about, that joyful, self-confident, self-assured cancer survivor that knew how to do this. And so little by little, by getting out there, getting up on my side sticks, walking around, being able to move, uh, empowering myself through these physical challenges, that's what really set the stage for me. And eventually by reaching out and communicating sharing my story and learning what had happened to me one of the primary things that happens when you are in a domestic abuse situation is you're constantly being blamed for everything your abuser is constantly t- everything is your fault Whole the sun doesn't rise properly then it's definitely your fault and the whole thing so to unlearn this conditioning of this sort of shame and blame cloak that you're carrying around. It's all my fault. It's my fault that I'm in this situation. I chose this terrible person. I should have seen the red flags. I, I should have left when I had the chance. There's so many, you know, the rhetoric that can go on that you can hear in the background of, of what you are told sort of by your abuser, but at even on a larger scale by society. I mean, society is really also giving you this victim shaming and blaming. So to undo that was, I think that's the real key to turn the tide for yourself of your recovery piece is like you were saying, how do you forgive yourself so that you can move on? It's truly you, you I wish that I could articulate the appropriate, You know, oh, it's easy. You just follow these three steps and boom, it'll be over. I wish it could be that easy, but in part, that's what we're doing with the Unbounded Horizons program is trying to assemble this vehicle of healing for our participants so that they can also make this transition that I've made where it's still, I'm still working on it. It's not as if I woke up one day and I just said, oh, great. I don't have any shame and blame any longer. I'm good. So I'm hopeful that through this program we can start to plant those seeds for them, sort of show them the trailhead, if you will, for their own share for their own healing journey. Because that's really where that transition begins to happen, where you lift the veil off of accepting and owning all of this abuse that was inflicted upon you. You did not ask for it. You didn't sign up for it. You didn't choose it. So. Once you finally get to that place where you can recognize that this has been a literal assault upon you and you have been a prisoner in your own home or your own wherever setting this has been going on, and you can release some of that responsibility, to me, it's almost like, you're like, oh gosh, like it wasn't my fault after all, like, gosh, I might be able to heal now.
0: Part of it also has to be the healing that you're talking about, and the support that you're talking about is is people recognizing that they are not the that 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 they're not alone, because you probably do feel completely alone in your situation, which is probably the strategy, whether explicitly stated or not, is to keep you as isolated as possible, because then 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 you're a prisoner and then you don't have. You don't have any recourse to to have people say, "Wow, you know, that's absolutely crazy. You, you can't do that." But I loved your, your message about the little the little obstacles that you encountered in your hikes and how much that can mean to you. Because in some ways, it's easy to dismiss those. Like, okay, yeah, so you walked over, you know, you got over a route, Like, that's great, you know. But it's like, but it's it really is kind of a big deal when you have to figure out a strategy to conquer this and how how does the building part of it because it really is a building part isn't it the building part of like taking that little that minor victory today's victory and going that was a victory i'm good i'm healthy and and being able to to build on it in a positive way because you want everything to go in a positive direction obviously there will be setbacks but how, how, do you, how do you envision that, that process working?
1: When you were just talking about that, it reminded me of uh, one of the first times I had to you know, really go over more than one root, more than one big rock. And I was like, oh gosh, how am I gonna do this? And so I'll literally just put my crutches down on the ground and got down on my bottom and scooted over everything, like a kid would, right? Like, I mean, they're so apt to get right down on the ground, but as adults, I don't, like, we're too far away or something. (laughs) We're too afraid to get dirty. So I just got down on the ground and scooted on my bottom, and it was almost like this sort of, like, oh, I got this. I got to learn how to crawl before I can learn how to run. I forgot I had to do it that way. And so it really sort of set this metaphorical situation up for me that my expectations of what I was going to be able to achieve on a daily basis, I wasn't going to go run a marathon. I needed to learn how to just use my crutches appropriately, figure out how to get over different terrain. And so, in part, that's a great analogy for our participants when they come into the program. We're not going to throw them down on, I mean, maybe we will put them down on the ground and make them move around. but really the idea is is that we've all got to learn how to crawl before we can walk again so that's the biggest challenge that we have is that you know really is to set up that process for our participants as they come into the program to ensure that they feel not only welcomed included and part of this group setting but also so that they can feel uh, ready to crawl first we've got to learn how to crawl and then give them the appropriate safety steps so that they can do the crawling, do the walking. And if they wanna learn how to run, maybe learn how to run, but they don't have to learn how to run at all. So, you know, they can just do whatever they wanna do as far as that's concerned. You know, really for us, what we're trying to do is to build that uh, vessel for them and the safety net for them so that we can bring them out, teach them how to crawl in the setting of meaning Taking them out for little hikes out there, feeding them little tidbits at a time, but not expecting or telling them that they're going to need to go from zero to 60. 60 might not even be the speed they want to go to. Letting them also dictate just exactly how far and how fast they want to go. I hope that answers your question.
0: No, it does. And it's, it's really interesting, I think, in, as well, in that, one, you're talking about the safety net. As, as being the most important part. we you're talking about people who, who've been abused and the first step to getting better is, is actually getting in touch with your humility, which can be the most powerful part of who we are, but is not the first thing that jumps to mind when we think about getting stronger. And so, so it's interesting in, in the sense of the, of the support and how do you how do you how do you kind of nurture people along that way because i get because i would imagine one of the issues with support is that it's hard to trust anyone
1: mhm funny you mention that so been doing some intensive work with my team for unbounded horizons for the past couple of days really kind of pulling together our curriculum and our approach and Um, the topic of conversation of late has been relational trust. And about not only relational trust amongst the people who are working together, but also amongst this entire group of people that we're going to be working with. And that relational trust really needs to be established before we embark upon any crawling activities. There's no crawling before there's trusting. Because in case somebody can't crawl or in case somebody needs some help crawling, They're going to need to trust us enough to let us help them or trust us enough to be vulnerable enough to let us to ask us to help them. So the relational trust piece is really something that's sort of a quintessential piece to our program of what we're building. And we're doing this through activities, which are really rooted way back in outward bound activities. And one of the things that they do is something at the beginning of their, um, Uh, I don't know if it's the beginning of every single one of their uh, activities that they do, or if it's, you know I'm not exactly sure how it lays out, but nonetheless, the idea is the same. And it's this activity called crew meetings, going back in time to sort of this nautical theme that a crew on a vessel, everyone has a job. None of them are exactly the same, but each one of them have an equal level of importance because you won't get from point A to point B without your entire crew. Working together as a unit and no one is working for the betterment of themselves. Everyone is working as a unit. To forward the unit to get the unit to the next place. And so that in and of itself is the type of atmosphere that our intention will be to build with our participants for unbounded horizons is to set them up so that they have the support network long before we ever ask them to start taking risks
0: you said early on when we were talking about the marathon that that you think about the people, you know, you think about the people that you're affecting. How is it as, as a leader and, and as a role model, how do you think, do you think differently about yourself? Because you said it's been 16 months for you. So really it's not like this thing is completely over. You still probably have good days and bad days But, but helping other people, how does that hold you to a different standard? Or how does that have you hold yourself to a different standard?
1: That's another great question. And interestingly enough, apropos from what developed with my team over the past couple of days, uh, thankfully, I have learned, don't take my marriage as a track record piece, by the way, let's leave that one out of the... uh, of the track record other than that one but like I said that really wasn't quote unquote all my fault so um, I, I think that I have learned over the years of how to surround myself with really supportive people and with people who can help me to achieve that next level because at the end of the day none of us can really achieve much without the support of others that's really it's a community effort to get us all there And so the larger the stakes in the game or the bigger the ante you're going to be putting out there for yourself, the bigger the support group is that you really need to build around you. So when I started to set out on building Unbounded Horizons, I knew that I was not the person to be the program development person, if you will. Uh, This is not, I'm a marine biologist. Just because I survived domestic abuse does not make me an expert on how to tell people how to heal from it. I can share my experiences, but by no means does it make me an expert. I am a very, uh, I like to call myself passionate. Other people might call it demonstrative or pushy. So I don't necessarily have the appropriate um, character to set this entire program up. So thankfully I have a team of people that is assembling things together for with me. And now I say for me because they gave me the boot yesterday. They gave me the official boot, which I am actually really grateful for because I transitioned over from being I'm still the, you know, the inspiration behind the program and I'm orchestrating some stuff in the background, but I am now officially your very first Unbounded Horizons participant. I am going to participate in our program that we are launching this May as a full blown participant. So now I am no longer involved in curriculum development so that it is a surprise for me and an authentic experience for me when I get to go do this program because at the end of the day, the impetus behind where this whole thing came was, I was wishing for myself that I had a program like this to attend. And so I decided, well, if there isn't one, I'm just going to make one so that other people can attend this program. And lo and behold, this amazing team said, "Eh, you need to go to this.
0: Which is absolutely amazing. And back to some of what you've been talking about, the the central thesis of what you've talked about has really been about support. And we started with your marathon and you're not running your marathon alone, right? Your friend, Leilani? Leilani,
1: Yes, and my friend, Lindsay, and another friend, Lainey, is our support person. She shows up with water and snacks every six miles and a chair for me. It's quite lovely. Uh,
0: No. The idea of support is something that we know that we all need. But it's hard to, to create a situation where we get the support that we need. Do you have any any tips on, on how people can set out and create that support or, or get nourished by the support that they need?
1: I don't know if you've ever heard of that little, you know, social media does that little thing where they're like, you know, oh, you know, put this in and I'll, I'll give you your word of the year instead of having an intent or sorry, setting a um, your New Year's resolution to set a word for the year. So I kind of got, you know, I was kind of getting into the, I'm stuck in COVID. I'll follow your social media trend. What's my word? Turned out my word for 2020 was ask ASK. I was like, Oh, okay. Well, I'm not very good at that. So maybe that's why I got that one. And I do also joke around about the fact that, you know, nothing like having your leg amputated and start living in a wheelchair where it does, you have to, your life is slowed down significantly and you do need to really learn how to ask for help. And so, as much as I have not wanted to have to learn this, I did. And so to tell others some tips that I could give is that I can promise you there is a world of help out there. They want to give it to us. We literally just need to ask. Literally, I promise. And also, you know, that it doesn't again, like I said, nobody we weren't born into this world all by ourselves. We didn't get here all by ourselves. This was, you know, there's two people that happened to make us. To get us to this point in time. So, you know, we're, we didn't come into this world all alone. And so, you're to think in a notion that you'll be able to survive on your own, independent, never needing assistance from anyone else throughout the entire course of your life is again setting yourself up for failure because that's not, I don't know of anyone that's capable of doing that. And I'm hopeful that as we move forward out of this pandemic, people are beginning to see how much we all really need each other and all of these sort of shift in the timing of what we've done, instead of being in a rat race, running off to the job and worrying about all these other things. And we've all been a lot more literally closer to home, spending time with loved ones and really reevaluating what's important to us. I'm hopeful that society is able to make a little bit of a lot, a bit of a shift away from it being such the societal norm that It's a sign of weakness to ask for help. It's a sign of weakness to go to counseling. I mean, I think I've mentioned to you already, I think every person in the entire globe needs to go to counseling once a week, regardless of whether they've been through trauma or not. We go to the doctor all the time for physical stuff. Why not the counselor doctor for our head?
0: How can can you maintain power or strength while asking for help? Because that's the worry, isn't it?
1: I think hopefully if the notion can be that just by asking for help doesn't mean that there's anything less of you. It's actually by asking for help, you're there's more of you. Because with people who are helping you, you can actually be more of yourself now. Because instead of you having to triage out all over the place, trying to do a thousand different things all over the place without ever really knowing on the inside how to focus and stay true to that thing that needs the most of you, which is you on the inside, I feel like if you don't ask for help or if you can't get the help when you need it, it is not, like I was saying, it's definitely not a sign of weakness. It's actually a sign of strength. And, it, and you do, you know, the first steps of doing it, just like I did when I, when I was out there learning how to get over that root or figuring out how to get over that rock the first time At first I was like, oh my gosh, I'm so not going to get down on the ground. That is so embarrassing. Like, no. And of course my friend is immediately filming me and I'm like, oh, this is like not pretty right now. But we posted it on social media and what I would have thought society would have kind of chopped at, you know, and just sort of made fun of, you know, look at that one-legged person crawling around on the ground with her booty getting all dirty and looking a fool. That's what I thought everyone would think, oh no it was like blew up and it was so inspirational and people couldn't believe it. And so in that moment for me, the asking for help and that the preconceived notion that it's a sign of weakness to have to take these baby steps and reach out to others for support really translates into this platform for massive growth and success.
0: And it can also be a gift. To, to the other people, right? This idea of, of asking for help can be a way to say, hey, thank you, and, and, and I, I'm appreciative, and, and it can really be a gift. How can, I know that you're training hard right now, training hard for 6-6, right? So June 6th, Twenty-six point two miles, which is going to be great, and they're going to be each mile in that point two at the end. Don't forget the point two. Will be dedicated to the point two. Will be dedicated to your mom. Is that That's you've already mom?
1: Yep, yep. When she was dying from her pancreatic cancer, she made me a promise that she would. I would carry her across the finish line. She's actually in a little urn, right? right back there behind me. And I'm going to take that with me just for the point two, by the way, that somebody can hand that to me for the point two.
0: (laughs) How can people follow you? How can people help support the great work that you're doing?
1: I wanted to say first, thank you for also mentioning the reciprocal exchange of um, energy between people in that giving and receiving process. It's definitely an amazing thing. So to to find me, my social handle on Instagram, the old Graham and Facebook is at Hoppy Hiker, P-N-W, because I live in the Pacific Northwest. So Hoppy, H-O-P-P-Y, because I'm Hoppy Hiker. And then also I have a personal website, which is my name, Dana-Lawson.com. And that's where I write blogs. You were so kind to be uh, a guest of mine on one of my blogs uh, where I do Fridays with friends. So all kinds of wacky things that I put on my um, different social channels as well, uh, training marathons. And then last but not least, if you want to learn about Unbounded Horizons, that website is its name, Unbounded Horizons with an S.org, O-R-G, and all kinds of great information. We're taking registrations for participants now. If you feel moved to want to support the program, we've got a donate button on there. Um, I would just encourage everyone to just kind of check it out, get that conversation started about domestic abuse, about trauma, about recovery, about getting out in nature and how we can be a stronger community together.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you so much for everything you're doing, Dana. Thank you for joining us and train hard, (laughs) enjoy the marathon. It'll be spectacular. I mean, it'll be absolutely spectacular and great to be Great to be outside and have such a wonderful view. So thank you to you for joining us. It's really been a pleasure.
1: Thanks so much, Chris, I really appreciate it. And if I have to say one major success of our hour together, no cats. I don't know how it happened. No cats.
0: Uh, <laughs> I've not had that success before, but, I, but it's great that we've actually had, I think we've actually had a few times where we have had cats, so, so yes. Close you weren't invaded by the cats. That's good. I'm glad to hear it. But anyway, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Thank you to all of you for listening. Uh, this will become a podcast later on, and you can find it on YouTube. You can watch it again on YouTube. You can watch it on the One Revolution channel on Facebook. You can also get it wherever you get your, your podcast, whether that's Apple, Spotify, Google, you can do it. And please, if you enjoy it, tell it to your friends, like us, follow us, and come back next week and we'll have another great guest. So Dana, thank you and keep up the great work.